Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Michael Morine podcast. This is the third episode in this series. I've been away for a little bit, um, but I'm happy to get back on track with, with doing these and filming these. Uh, today, we have a really special guest with us. We have Father Nick from my local church in uh, Rams, New Jersey, St. Paul's. And how you doing today, Nick? Fine, thank you, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. I'm super looking forward to this discussion. This is probably the, the most excited I've been um, to okay. film one of these. So, you know, the main premises of this podcast are going to kind of be just learning about you and your backstory, why you became a priest. Um, but I also do want to ask like questions I have about Catholicism, Christianity, religion, um, and then just kind of some symbolism I, I've noticed in things. And also just, you know, my experience as a physical therapy student and constantly having like scientific topics discussed and, and brought up and um, just looking to kind of grow in my faith and hopefully take some people along the ride with me. So the very first thing I want to ask you is, you know, if you could just briefly just run through kind of like your backstory, like, you know, where'd you grow up? What'd you do? And why did you end up um, considering becoming a priest? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so my name is uh, Father Nick Sertich. Um, grew up in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. So not all that far from Ramsey. So I'm, I'm, I'm a local boy uh, from North Jersey. So that's pretty fun. Um, I'm the oldest of one and the youngest of one. So it's just me, only child. So it's kind of interesting being a priest and not having brothers and sisters, most of them usually do. And so I come from a very small family. Um, but I grew up, you know, we had pretty much like an average Catholic family. Uh, we weren't super, super Catholic by any means, we were just kind of average. Um, I did go to Catholic school. And so I grew up at Epiphany in Cliffside Park. That's my home parish. And I, well, I began in the school there and I've been kind of stuck in Catholic school in a good way uh, for the past 28 years. I'm 28 too. So I've, I've been in Catholic school my whole life. Um, so I grew up there at Epiphany. I went to the grammar school there. And uh, in grammar school, you know, it, it was smaller, but uh, it was a very strong Catholic atmosphere. Um, so we had a very, a very well-informed principal who really tried to instill the uh, love of the church and, and love of the sacraments. And of course, love of Jesus Christ um, into all of us. His name was Mr. Barry. I remember him. Very good guy. And, um, and he tried to do activities in the school that always kept us involved with the church. So we'd go to mass once a month for first Fridays. Uh, we do kind, we would do rosaries. We would do stations of the cross, all these other different kinds of activities in the school. That kind of the traditional things that fostered um, Catholic identity early on. And so I was always kind of um, immersed in a, a strong Catholic um, atmosphere, especially at school, and then at home too. Um, you know, my mom and dad and, and my grandparents as well always try to instill Christian values in me. Uh, my mom's a Catholic school teacher in a different school, so that definitely had something to do with it as well. Um, so it was a strong Catholic upbringing. Um, but looking back, when people ask me, you know, what did you first think about a priest, becoming a priest? Um, it was in third grade. We actually had a nun. Uh, her name was Sister Mary Ann, and uh, I loved Sister Mary. I thought she was one of the greatest people in the world. I was scared to death of her, but uh, I thought she was so fascinating. And I remember she asked, uh, she asked if everybody in class in third grade, if everybody would make a commitment to get someone from their family to take them to daily mass um, each day before Advent. So that was like Advent 
2001, I think. And she asked everyone if they would bring a family member or someone with them to mass. And so I, remember I went home and I asked, uh, I asked my, my, uh, my mom and she said, oh, ask your grandmother because my grandmother lived across the street from the church. And I would spend every morning, my parents would drop me off at my grandmother's house. Um, and then she would take me to school because it was just one block over. Um, and so I asked my grandmother, oh, would you take me to, to mass in the morning? And she said, oh, okay, yeah, sure. And my grandmother, you know, she'd go on Sundays and that was it. She didn't go every day. Um, and so we started going every day actually for Advent. And, um, and the teacher, you know, Sister Marianne saw this and I was the only student in the class that actually did it. Uh, so for those four weeks of Advent, and then we kept with it after Christmas. And then in Lent, this old man, Charlie, who was the, uh, who was the, like the old guy who would set everything up before mass and he'd altar serve as a priest. He, uh, he said, oh, you know, why don't you take my job? And so it was to be like a little altar server. Um, and so it kind of became our thing. My, and then with my grandmother, she and I would go every single day. At the end of mass, I'd walk over to the school with, uh, with the nun, with Sister Marianne. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of the beginning of that. And then even after, you know, third grade was done, my grandmother and I went to daily mass every single day for the rest of my time in elementary school. It just kind of became our thing. You know, we'd have breakfast, go to mass, and I'd go to school. And I remember Sister Marianne telling me once, she was like, oh, someday you're going to become a priest. And I said, oh, no. And she said, don't ever say no to God. Uh, <laughs> she never said why. She just said, oh, one day you're going to become a priest. And wow. um, yeah, it was, so that, that, that was my first thought. And I remember sitting there as a kid uh, serving mass. And, you know, when you're in third grade, you kind of look up to the people around you. And I really started looking up to, uh, to the pastor, uh, this old guy, Father Don, who became kind of like a grandfather to me. Um, and he was just a very well-respected man, a very humble man, just got along with everyone around him. And you could see the difference he made in people's lives just by being a good person and being concerned for others and asking them how they are and things like that. And that was my first taste of like, oh, well, this is what a, a priest is like. A priest helps people. Um, and, and so I always thought, you know, I want to help people like that too. You know, I'd like to be that kind of, you know, that figure in people's lives to give them some kind of hope or um, support when they when they need a shoulder to cry on or, you know, somebody to smile with, congratulate, you know, them in good times and bad. And I saw that in our, our home parish pastor as a kid. It was something I wanted uh, to imitate. And uh, so that was like the first time I thought about it. And I kind of put it in the back of my head. Um, and then in high school, I went to Paramus Catholic. So again, I'm from Bergen County, grew up here. Um, and our chaplain in Paramus Catholic, Father Larry, um, asked, he sent out a, a form to everybody, all the boys in the school. And he said, oh, if you've ever thought about becoming a priest, um, you know, to, to fill out the form. And he would take us on a tour of the seminary. And so, uh, so my two closest buddies and I, um, Adrian and Matt, we, we all filled out that, oh yeah, we, we all want to become priests. And, uh, and so the chaplain for Larry took a tour, took a tour bus of maybe 25 guys from Paramus Catholic to the seminary. And so they, um, we got to meet the seminarians. We got to talk to the priests who were there, ask them questions, you know, what got them involved in the church? Why did they want to make those decisions? There's some very good guys there. And you heard some pretty, pretty moving stories about why they wanted to serve God in the church, especially in today's world. And then again, you know, I kind of put in the back of my head, like, oh, this might be something too. Uh, but then I graduated and I went to Seton Hall as an undergrad. 
um, just as a regular undergrad student. I wasn't in the seminary at Seton Hall. Um, and so I was, my original plan was to major in history and then try to uh, take a crack at law school afterwards. That was my original plan. Um, but then towards the end of my second year at Seton Hall, I started taking some electives in theology um, and started to, I guess, take my faith more seriously um, in an academic sense, kind of like learning what we need to learn about the faith and, and how it relates to the world. And it was in my time at Seton Hall and some of the classes I took, uh, especially with some of the ones with, um, with different priests um, who changed the way I looked at my faith and changed the way I looked at the church. It's not simply just, you know, being a priest would be just a job or our faith is just something you do on Sunday. Um, but our Catholic faith is something that really touches every area of our lives and that really religion touches every area of life in general. Um, and so it's something more applicable. And again, I got to meet some of the guys who were in the seminary then at the time at Seton Hall. I thought it was, you know, a, a nice thing to try out, at least. And I talked to other priests I knew and some of the other people I knew and kind of felt them out. And everyone was very supportive and encouraging of me. And so when it came time to graduate, um, I decided to apply to the seminary or apply to become a priest here in the Archdiocese of Newark. And uh, you go on in different interviews with the different priests who were there. And, you know, they were all very supportive and encouraging of me. And, and so are my friends, you know, they're very supportive from the beginning, uh, my mom and dad as well, and the rest of my family. Uh, like I said, I'm an only child. So my mom's like, oh, no, no grandchildren. <laughs> but, uh, but certainly, you know, very supportive. And it was, uh, and so I entered the seminary right after college. Um, so that was in 2015. And I was in the seminary for a year at Seton Hall. Um, and then after that, uh, the Archdiocese of Newark decided to send me to, um, to Rome to finish all my studies in Italy. Um, so from 2016, just up until uh, actually this past June, I was living in Rome at the, uh, at the North American College in Rome. Uh, so I finished my seminary studies there. And while I was there, I, I, got my, um, I finished my studies for the priesthood, but I also got my graduate degrees in theology and, and my area of uh, specialty is ethics. So morals. And so I studied at the Gregorian University in Rome, which is the big, the most famous Jesuit university, probably there is. Um, and then, uh, and then I did my other work at the Alfonsiana, which is run by the Redemptorists. And so that was pretty fun too. And then I just came back home. Yeah, well, I was ordained in June of 2020. Um, so during the pandemic, that certainly made it interesting. Uh, can only have two guests. Yeah. So small group small group, but um, so I was ordained in 2020. Uh, I spent a few months working at St. Uh, Peter's in River Edge. Um, that's where I was as a seminarian, as a deacon, and then as a newly ordained priest, just in the summer times when I'd be home. Um, so I worked with Father Mike Sheehan there, who's real inspiration to me and is my mentor and has guided me a lot in what it means to be a priest. And, um, and then I went back to Rome, finished more studies, and then came back and just came back this past June, 2021. And then uh, I was assigned to St. Paul's and Ramsey here. And so I've been here since July and, and it's been an absolute blast. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely community, very large community. Uh, so many different things going on, so many different people to meet. We have about 4,050 families. So I think we're the sixth or seventh largest in the archdiocese. Um, so there's, there's always a lot going on. And of course, getting to meet you and your family and other people around, it's, it really is, a you know, beautiful way to live out at least the priesthood as a young priest. 
So it's just a little bit about me. You've been all over the place. Yeah, well, not all over, but close enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. So it sounds like you kind of always had the faith present from a very young age. Um, and just like gradually over time, the interest increased. Um, so do you, do you know if there was any like moment where you just like clicked, like this is exactly what I want to do? I know you mentioned like in, in high school when they were passing out the forms and stuff like that, or when you were in Seton Hall. But do you recall like a time where it just kind of clicked, like this is what I I'm I want to do? Or is it kind of just that gradual, as you explained? I think, uh, I, you know, I think when we think of people becoming priests or nuns or any anything like that, you think like there's this this moment where the, the light bulb goes off or, you know, the heavens open up and God says, this is what I want for you. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and for the most part, that, that doesn't generally seem to be that way. Uh, for, I think my story kind of fits in uh, along the lines of most other people's stories is that it's kind of like a slow burn. It's something that's just God's presence is constantly there and small things along the way kind of snowball into like, okay, you know, uh, taking years to think about something. And it's very few people I think have that moment where it's like, oh no, you know, I need something different with my life. There are people who have that. And you hear some beautiful stories about, you know, people who in very different walks of life um, and then make this all of a sudden this big change. But for me, it was a bit different. Like I said, I was always kind of immersed in that, like, um, Catholic atmosphere. Um, I always took my faith very seriously and something. Um, and even just among my friends, you know, who maybe, you know, well, they didn't become priests, you know, still at least religion in the presence of the church always played an important part in, um, in our lives. So it was never something that was just there. I was always kind of immersed in it. And um, I was always very involved in my parish. That made a big difference to my home parish in Cliffside. Um, I did everything from snaking toilets and running fundraisers to, um, to working with RCIA, so people becoming Catholic, helping teach classes for that, uh, working with confirmation students. And um, I also, I began our big social outreach uh, program there. So we began a, a food pantry. Um, I began that when I was 13. So in my home parish, you know, we, we started with seven families. And by the time I left to go to Italy, we had a little over 700 um that we were wow. serving yeah from all those towns um so it wasn't just religion was something i'd go to mass on sunday and think okay you know this is great or say my prayers every day but i always was very involved in the church and always saw the church as something as a force for good yeah, and not just in the local community but in the global world and in the lives of the people that we serve and awesome. so I, the thing that really attracted me was like oh religion isn't just something you know you keep in your own head and keep to yourself but it should compel how you interact with the world around you and it should make a positive influence on the lives of, of everyone it touches. And if it's not, then that's not good religion. That's simply yeah, it. I agree hundred yeah. percent. I think a lot of people, and obviously I, I'm more familiar with my age than other generations, but I think that's a, a big thing with a lot of people is religion is, you know, they, they'll say they, they believe they they're Christian they're Catholic, whatever it is. But, um, it's not, it's like secondary or tertiary even. It's not like a primary aspect of, you know, their thought process. Um, it's kind of just like in their back pocket, like you've mentioned, you know, they might go on Sundays, they might not even go. Um, and, you know, I've always been trying to figure out why that exactly is um, for a while. And I mean, I'm also to blame with that, you know, growing up, I was, I had a, a bit of a different experience than you. Like 
God was always very present in my life. You know, ever since I was born, my parents were telling me like, you know, as a little kid, you ask a ton of questions like, why is this here? Why is this happening? Or why am I here type of things? How did I get here? And my parents were always, you know, using Catholicism, the Bible to explain things. Um, So it was always very present in my life. And, you know, whenever my parents would like ask me questions or something, I would even like repeat back to them like, oh, it's because it's God and, and stuff like that. Like when I was super young. So it was always really present in my life. And then, you know, you get older and then all of a sudden you find out that, oh, like, you know, there's some people who don't believe in this or they believe in some things are slightly different. And then you start to wonder, oh, well, why is that? And then, you know, when you're really young, you think that kind of just like everyone thinks this way. And then you start to get exposed to different ideas and all of a sudden people are making arguments for one thing or arguments for a different thing. And then you add in just being a teenager in the modern day and trying to fit in social stuff and whatnot. So I I don't want to say I strayed from faith, but I just think when I was younger, like it was so it was like the primary thing of my life. Um and then it kind of I guess faded, but it was always still there. I was just very like I wasn't openly like saying that I'm this and this is what I believe in. But I always believed it. And now I'm starting to come into a mindset where like I'm much more confident and comfortable expressing my faith and defending the faith. And a lot of that's just been like through my own research and like learning about it. Cause that was another thing is, you know, up until honestly, like a year ago, all, all my beliefs surrounding religion and Catholicism were just what other people were telling me or like Bible readings here and there that I'd hear at mass or something. But it wasn't like my individual, like going out and, and like watching YouTube videos or listening to, certain people talk about certain topics and things like that. Um, and then obviously like at school, it's not something that they teach. I mean, I know it might, you might have a different experience with going to a Catholic high school and everything. Um, but my public school didn't teach anything about it. And then I remember when I went to college, my freshman year, we actually had an English class who I, I had the English professor on this podcast and he did, his course was all about, like mythology and creation stories. And a big part of that was reading the Bible. And I wrote a, I wrote a paper kind of like comparing and contrasting the creation story of Genesis with the Quran and stuff like that. Um, and that was kind of when I started like my own individual kind of like adventure into the text and, and the, and the faith that, you know, my whole life I identified with, but really hadn't explored. Um, and so that's bigger to why I even wanted you on this podcast was just because I have like tons of questions and whatnot, but I, I do want to stay on topic with what um, your kind of experience was like. I'm, I'm curious what seminary school, like what is a typical week or month or like, how does that, I'm, I really don't know anything about it. Like what, what is that? I mean, I, they sent you to Italy. It sounds like they're doing pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, in Italy, it's a bit different than it would be here. Um, but there are some, there's certain general, um, commonalities, regardless of which seminary. There are seminaries, Catholic seminaries all across the country. Um, Some are larger than others. Um, So I went to the American seminary in Rome. Um, So there were about 250 of us from all across the United States um, together in one building. Whereas at the seminary at Seton Hall, for example, the one here for the Archdiocese of Newark only has about 35 to 40 people. And they're only from really this region of the country. Um, So that kind of changed things as well. because 
had I stayed here and done my schooling for the seminary at Seton Hall, I wouldn't have been as exposed to really not just the global church, but the church across the United States. Um, so that was a real benefit of, of being in the seminary there is you hear the different experiences of the church and people's faith um, in all parts of our country. And you realize that, you know, the, the Catholic church you think is the Catholic church, that it's the same thing everywhere. Um, it's really not. We, we share a common faith, but the way that's lived out, it can be so different. Um, forget about just the United States and Italy. It could be very different even from like growing up here in the New York metro area compared to some of the guys I met who were training to be priests who are from Kansas or Nebraska or from Montana. A very different understanding of the faith sometimes, different questions and issues arise in those settings that maybe don't hear. And that definitely affects the way um, people take their faith or treat their faith. Um, but being in the seminary, it's basically... Um, they teach you how to be a priest. Like there's the how to be the priest 101 stuff, like kind of how to preach, um, how to say mass, that kind of thing. But then there's also the how to minister to people part. So counsel, how to counsel people. Um, so we're trained very lightly, but we're trained at least a little bit in um, basic counseling skills, basic listening skills. Um, well, what do you do when people come forward to you with questions of like, oh, they're having, um, marriage trouble or things like that. Um, so they train us, they train us in that, but then they also train us in academic sense. That's one of the big differences between the formation in Rome and the formation here in the States. And the States is more like how to be a priest one-on-one and that's it. And here's the basics of what you need to know. In Rome, you're in more of an academic track. Um, so our, our degrees are academic rather than terminal professional degrees. Um, and because of that, you're allowed to specialize in different areas of the church's you know, teachings or, or understanding of God, theology, um, study of God. Um, and so people choose different areas. Some do church history, some do scripture studies, you know, different, you know, there are different ways you could focus your studies. So I chose to focus mine though on ethics. Um, so really ethical questions, moral questions, uh, because I think these are things that um, people lose sleep over. These are things that people leave the church over. Um, nobody is waking up in the middle of the night asking themselves, oh no, what did the third council of Lyon in whatever year decide about this or that? Or what does this word in Hebrew mean in this scripture? No, it's, there are people, they lose sleep over like, oh, well, my marriage is falling apart or my kids don't go to mass or, you know, I'm being pressured to marry someone or, you know, I can't have a fourth kid, you know, all different kinds of things. I think those are questions that really affect people's lives and, and questions that I think the church really needs a good, honest approach to, especially when understanding the lived experience of people's lives. And so that's, that's why I, that was my area of, of focus. Um, Cause I think a lot of it depends on that. Um, ethical questions and choices that's where you know the rubber meets the road with the faith it's like you can, uh, you can go to catholic school you want and they can instill values in you and you can come to mass on sunday and you can hear about those values but you're the one who makes decisions for your own life and and that's where faith really gets put into practice that's where it's not just about what you hear on sunday what you read in the bible but the, the choices we make each day and that's why i think religion is an important thing in our lives because of that um but yeah, but that was just my kind of training in that. Um, as for the schooling itself, a lot of it is you learn as you go. 
Um, I mean, you could easily have a workshop with how to how to preach at mass on Sunday, um, but you're preaching in front of three people who are your own peers. You're not standing in front of a crowd of, you know, 300 people trying to give something that actually speaks to their lives. It's a bit different. So at least in my experience, um, being a newer, not newly, but newer ordained priest, a lot of it is you learn as you go. Um, and especially with the pandemic, half my last year of training was cut off because of the pandemic. And so a lot of the more practical things that I have to do, like how to do mass, basically, that I learned on my own um, by imitating, you know, things I've seen. And same thing with preaching. It's, you know, there are some excellent preachers I've heard, and I try to imitate them as best I can, their style. And um, but the rest of it, you learn as you go. It's an ongoing thing. Awesome. I, I actually, about, you know, I do want to say I have really enjoyed the homilies I've heard from you. And you, you have, you're, you're very good at public speaking. And I'm curious if that's something that you like, just kind of like a gift you've always had, or if that's kind of been something you've really improved upon. And if you have any like tips on like what works for you or. Well, it's not a, I don't know. It's not something that comes naturally. I mean, I feel very comfortable standing in front of like a, a large crowd of people and, and it's, um, I guess that's just my own kind of personality with that. Um, I did take a public speaking course in college. It was a required course. And it was, uh, you learn basic tips of like finding point people in the room, like, okay, lady with, with black shirt, you know, guy with red hair. And you kind of like, you focus your spots around the room. Um, but a lot of it is simply, you know, you practice as you go. I mean, they recorded our first homilies when we worked in workshops and I've, I've seen the recording and it's awful. Oh my goodness. It's, um, it's kind of one of these things, it's like, you know, you don't think about driving anymore. You know, you don't consciously keep your hands at 10 and two, you know, check every single mirror every single time. All of a sudden it becomes like second nature. You get in your car and you go. Eventually it gets to that point, at least for me, it feels that way. Now I feel I can get up there with anything. Um, it does take time, you know, the content of what you're saying takes a lot of time and effort to put into that. Um, but the delivery thing, you should just feel kind of natural, kind of getting up there. I know, and, but then there are other priests who cannot stand it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, and that's unfortunate because it's, it's a good amount of what we do um, is really preaching. It's reflecting on the word of God because that's where we're taking the words that we just heard and trying to bring them to life into the lives of the people that are in front of us. Uh, I enjoy it very much. Uh, I try to work with other priests to give some good tips and advice too. Um, but yeah, I, I, I learned from the one priest, you know, his name was Father Ken Evans and, um, you know, probably the best preacher I've ever heard, um, style content. And I always wanted to kind of imitate that. And I've been trying. But it, yeah. Glad yeah. you like it. at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, you know, I've done a lot of public speaking in, in my life. And I've taken a public speaking course as well. I've held a lot of positions where I've had to do public speaking, tell people when I'm upset with them and stuff like that. Um, and for me personally, like what works that I've noticed also just like school, like you have to constantly give presentations and argue points. I've taken a bioethics class where I had to argue, you know, like stem cell research, should we do it or should we not? Or like what, you know, what middle area? Um, I've noticed that when, first of all, like, when you have like a deep passion for what you're talking about, like public speaking almost kind of erases itself. Um, like the the fear of public speaking when you really 
are well versed in what you're talking about and you have like that passion for it. Um, obviously there's a, an element of practice, but yeah, I think really it's just, you know, when you've dedicated your whole life to something, it's like you're excited to talk about it almost. It's, it's, you know, you're eager to, to share that, that knowledge and those emotions and how you feel and the reflections and everything. Um, which I've noticed whenever I give a presentation on a topic that like, I'm not that interested in, I end up becoming more nervous because I, I'm, I don't have as much passion or I don't have as much stuff to say. Whereas mm -hmm. like to certain topics, you know, that I feel personally invested in, it's like, I've a, like a much more of a fire inside of me when it comes to talking about those things. Um, so that's what I've noticed works well uh, for me personally with public speaking stuff. It certainly does. It just comes kind of like naturally. It's like, oh, you know, you know, you, it's coming from the heart. It's not just coming from the head. And that's exactly. that really that makes a difference. And it certainly does with preaching, too. Um, like like the phrase goes, you have to practice what you preach and you shouldn't get up there. Or at least priests should never get up there and, and make a claim or try to relate anything that he wouldn't apply to himself as well. Um, and so that's something I've tried to do is like, OK, well, this is a message I need to hear and learn from, too. And this is one I think the people in front of me do as well and that's what a good preacher i think does is not oh i have this information and i'm going to teach it to you or i have the answer i'm going to tell you the answer no these are common experiences um that relate to all of us in the room and things that we need to talk about um rather than i have the answer let me tell you about it that's right. not pre that's that might be teaching but that's not that's not preaching on sunday and that, that makes a bit of a difference, at least, you know, from public speaking point of view. What, what um, preparation goes into your homilies? You know, how do you prepare them? What I do is I usually look at the, uh, the readings. So, you know, you could see, you know, the readings are in a three-year cycle. So every three years, they get the same reading for the same weekend. Um, I look at the readings Monday, Tuesday of the Sunday before. I put them into, you know, a Word document. And I kind of, as I read them, you know, I put, like, oh, I pick out words here and there, uh, pick out different phrases. Oh, that seems important. That seems important. And um, kind of go from there. Then think, okay, well, what is what is this trying to get at, number one? And number two, is it something the people in front of me have heard before? This is at least something I've been trying to do because I, I think we've all been the experience of listening to a boring homily or something where it seems like, oh, I've heard this before, or that's the low-hanging fruit kind of approach. Like, okay, that's the basic well, let's try to look at it from a different angle. So like, let's try to see this, this gospel story that we're, we're hearing through the lens of someone else. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is to kind of, um, a lot of these stories where Jesus is healing somebody, it's easy for us to put ourselves in the place of the person being healed. Sometimes it's fun to kind of switch that around and be like, oh, how about the person on the outside who's standing who wasn't healed? What's their perspective? Because maybe it doesn't always feel like Jesus comes and snaps his fingers and heals us of whatever we're gone wrong. It might be more realistic to kind of look at some of these same stories that we've heard over and over and over again from a slightly different perspective. So that's how I try to read them. I find them a bit more beneficial that way sometimes. Um, and then I try to think, okay, well, what, what is it that this community in front of me needs to hear? Or, or the message that I need to hear as well. Um, because you could have two parishes in the same neck of the woods, similar kind of socioeconomic, you know, background. And yet each individual parish community is different. You know, you're dealing with people in front of you and their lives. Um, and that certainly comes into play. And then another thing that comes up a lot 
is things I hear in confession. That certainly guides the way we preach. Because it's easy to, to get up there and think, okay, these are, in my head, these are the things that people need to hear or want to hear. But when you're a priest and you're hearing what people are actually struggling with and the burdens that they're actually carrying and some of the things that are really weighing them down, the things people usually bring up in confession, then you can take it in a different perspective. Then you can say like, okay, how can this relate to what we're doing? So like a common, a common theme that I bring out a lot of my homilies, a lot of my preaching is theme of forgiveness. And that's simply because I hear it over and over and over again. One of the most common things I hear people bring up when they talk to me about something is like, oh, I just can't find it in my heart to forgive so-and-so. You know, this person hurt me and I can't forgive them. And so it's a lot of it has come from my experience of hearing what people are struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's like, okay, this is something we could really, this is where the words of God and the scriptures can relate more directly to people's lives rather than me getting up there and saying, oh, this is interesting. Let's talk about that. Gotcha. Yeah, I really like that approach. Um, you know, it's crazy because obviously the faith and the Bible and everything, these are thousand year old documents and traditions and things like that. And, you know, it's always great when you can tie a new perspective into something that's been around for so long. Um, and I think this is a good segue into kind of another topic I want to talk about was just like young people and, and, and Christianity and how do we get more pe young people interested in the religion who aren't? Um, and I think what you just said is a, is a great example. You know, you need to, obviously, somehow, you need to, the three A's of, uh, I guess, marketing is you need to uh, get their attention, attract, and then get action. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not the easiest thing to do. But first of all, I want to see if, like, you agree with the statement that there seems to be a declining interest. Maybe it's just the Northeast and our area, but, you know, is there a declining interest or numbers or like true dedication to the faith? I, I think in general, yeah. I think, of course, you could say that. I mean, it's it definitely seems to be the case around the world. It certainly was the case in Italy in my five years there. I mean, you have some of the most beautiful churches in the world, but they're all empty. Um, there's actually greater practice of the faith here in the United States than a lot of other... Um, Western countries. Um, so in France and Italy and Spain, Southern Germany, very traditionally, very Catholic um, areas, the faith isn't really practiced at all. And so, you know, our churches are at least somewhat full on Sundays, um, whereas in Europe, not so much. And then other parts of the country as well, um, you can point to different things like demographic changes. So like the church down South, um, the Southern United States or Southwest, it's growing. Um, and that's because mainly of immigration from South and Central America. So it's less, you can't look at that and say like, oh yeah, the church is doing just fine there. Um, there are different challenges in different parts of the country, but I do think you could say overall that there is a decline in, in the actual active practicing of the Catholic faith, but it goes for a lot of the Christian denominations, not just, not just the Catholic church. Yeah. Religious affiliation in general is down um, across the board doesn't matter if you're Lutheran, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, you know, it's, it's gone down. Yeah. And having an understanding of like, if you believe in, in the faith and I'm curious how you define, like, how does one obtain eternal life? But based on like the definition that I think most Catholics accept, that's like a pretty big problem. Um, 
that we have a decline. Would you agree? Yeah, it, it, it's certainly concerning, uh, and it's not and it's not so much about like a company that's failing. Um, it's not like a company who's saying like, oh no, people aren't buying our products anymore, and we need to do something about that. That's not how the church should look at it, and that's not how we should look at it because we're not selling something. Our goal is not to get more people through the doors. Our goal is not to get more money in the, in the collection basket. Our goal is to share an experience of, of Jesus Christ and why the message of Christ has a meaning in someone's life. And that is something more profound than simply coming to Mass on Sunday or putting money in the collection basket. Uh, it's not just a matter of that, but it's a matter of really showing people out wow, that this, the message of this man who we believe is God has something to say for your life and has something to say for the world around us. Getting to that point uh, is a big challenge. It, it, because you know, generations ago, it was an awful mentality, but it's basically what they worked with was, if you're not a priest and if you're not a nun, your only responsibility was to pay, pray, and obey. That doesn't work anymore. Uh, you can't expect people to, to do something if they don't feel a part of it or feel any value out of it. And if you know we tell people to come to Mass on Sunday and your life is going to be transformed, but we're not realistically looking at how they're living their lives or what their actual questions and issues are, then there's no point to what we say on Sunday. It's falling on deaf ears. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking for a moment about that. Um, so what do you think we should do about that? <laughs> How do we fix? I actually, I, I do want to make a comment before that. Um, you know, I'm on social media a fair amount more than I'd like to be. And I'm, I've found like, you know, there's certain like Christian people I follow on like TikTok or Instagram. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of like the stuff I see in social media, it's very like argumentative in nature whether you want mm -hmm. to talk about like apologetics and stuff like that. But, you know, there's always like this constant thing I'm seeing is trying to prove and like debunk and establish like why. And I, I've, I personally believe I have a pretty good grasp on like human nature and how humans work and how we, we think and stuff. That's usually like not the best way to convince someone that yeah. um, you're correct is by doing it in like a debate format or telling them that everything they believe is false. Um, not that everyone does that, obviously. I've just noticed that when I look at, at social media things where people try and defend the faith, which I respect, it's just I, I, I always believe, I believe that, you know, your actions and just who you are speak much louder than anything you can talk about. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, the positions I've held at Quinnipiac, my university, I have a lot of like young men. I'm also in a fraternity. You can see obviously right there. Um, you know, I have a lot of young men ask me, like, how do you manage your time so well? How do you handle like jobs and your positions in grad school? And, you know, I think the fact that I'm Catholic and I have a belief in this faith speaks to the faith. It's like, this is a person who has their stuff together and I try to live my life in a way where I embody the faith and, and people get drawn to me for various reasons, which might not even involve the religion, but it's kind of always there. And I'm always more than happy to talk about it with people. Um, I think just actions are like what it takes yeah. and, you know, words can help. And I think words, obviously like, you know, you need to speak and hear and listen and stuff to learn more 
and it's a great like teaching tool. But I do see a lot of that like on social media of people. I think they're just kind of approaching it incorrectly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, and I think if anybody has a problem with that, uh, they should look to the person we believe in, Jesus Christ. He did not operate in that way. Jesus was not standing there on a street corner picking fights with people. He was not arguing. He wasn't defending anything. He actually lived it out, like you're saying, Michael, in actions. Um, and his most important action he did before anything else, he listened. So you hear all these stories about him healing all these people. He was quiet. He listened. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, please, I want to see. Or what do you want me to do for you? Oh, my servant is homesick, and, and, and I'm not worthy that you should heal him. Jesus listened first before doing anything else. And I think that's something that we lost or sometimes can lose as a church. But it's something that, at least thanks to Pope Francis, this is something that we've really been trying to do again, is be a listening church. Listen to what questions people are actually asking. Listen to what they're struggling with. Listen to how they're living their lives. And it's if we ignore that, then how can we be followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's exactly what he did. He lived among the people he served. He, he listened to them, and he was able to respond to that effectively. He didn't go in guns a-blazing with anything and say, I have this. And, you know, not even, neither did St. Paul. Uh, you know, St. Paul went to these different communities, and he's this great um, evangelizer. He's this great apologist. He defended, you know, Christianity after his conversion, probably more than anyone else at the time. He didn't go in and say, all of you people are wrong. He went in, he listened to how the people were living lives. He's like, well, maybe that's not the best. Let's move from there to something greater. And we look at all the great saints too, the same thing. They did not, you know, have this kind of argumentative streak to them. Like this must be something we defend to the death. No, because it's not, we're not defending a position. We're sharing experience uh, of our relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And some some of these people on social media, um, I've, I've seen it too. I'm not on social media, but I've, when I was, I would see it. And it's actually one of the things that really turned me off to social media in general was the argumentative nature about people, you know, claiming to be Christians and claiming to love one another. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, the, the, the infighting and it's just, it's just not right. I think Jesus would sit and he'd go, oh my goodness, this is not what I wanted. Right. And, and I think this is something that we're really, at least the Catholic Church has been trying to do more in the past few years is be a really a listening church. And this is something, like I said, Pope Francis has been um, absolutely adamant about is that, you know, sometimes we don't have every answer clear cut. Sometimes you have to keep your mouth shut and, and kind of listen to what's going on, you know, what's going on in people's lives. Um, and especially for ethics, you know, from, from a moral point of view, I mean, I was trained that there are four sources to what the church teaches on different morals and ethics. And you have the scriptures, sure, that's important. You have what the church has taught, the tradition of the church. But then, of course, you also have the secular sciences. Like, well, what does psychology teach us about what it means to be a human person? What does, you know, physical therapy, the, the physical makeup of the body, what does the rest of the sciences explain to us about who we are as human beings and how does that affect the way we make moral choices? And then lastly, human experience, lived actual experience. What are the questions you're asking? You know, what are the problems you're facing? The problems we face in 2021 North Jersey, very different than the problems in you know, 1480 in France, or even in 1990 LA. 
you know, I mean, different questions arise at different times. And if we're actually going to respond to people and, and, and really share an experience of our faith, it's not going to be through picking fights or arguing points and who can shout the loudest. It's, it's really about who can listen the best and therefore respond the best and most appropriately. 100% just, agree. Yeah, and this is something that at least Pope Francis has really not just said that this is a good thing, but he's lived out himself. And, and even here in the Archdiocese of Newark, our own uh, Cardinal Tobin has been, has been really trying to enforce this, well, you know, attitude of listening in, uh, in priests and ministry, at least in the Archdiocese of Newark. And that's something, because it's exactly what Jesus did. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Time is flying. So I'm going to try to... I'm sorry. I want No, I know. No, you're fine. I'm just... I have a lot I want to talk to you about. And uh, time is... I feel like time's moving twice as fast as it normally does. Um, Trouble. Yeah, you mentioned PT and that whole... Yep. There's a whole... You know, I actually wanted to bring that up was... Um, I think PT school made me more religious. It made me more dedicated to my faith. And if... I don't know if you're aware, but in PT school, we we, we do dissections on real humans we have yeah. cadavers so like literally yesterday let's say wednesday yeah so yesterday i was i was cutting open a, a woman's butt um to look at the, the gluteus maximus and medius muscles and everything yeah. and last semester we cut you know these are real humans obviously not alive anymore oh, yeah um and we removed the brain from these people so you know i've held multiple human being their brains in my hands and i'll never forget like the moment of just like taking like someone's skull off and seeing a brain it was very weird for me just in general as you can imagine then you also yeah. tie in my religious background i was mm -hmm. you know i was comfortable with it but i was also like is this like okay to be doing um and i don't know if like you've probably seen like all those pictures of like monks holding skulls in their hands and like stuff like that, like contemplating, like, that's going to be me one day type mm -hmm. of thing. And, you know, I always thought like that this being like dissecting a human body would make me come to terms with the fact that like, oh, this is just what we are. And like, I thought it would take me a further away from my faith, but something about just like holding a human brain in my hands and just dissecting the human body and seeing like all your muscles and stuff and how everything just kind of runs and stems from this organ in your head down i don't know it made me i guess kind of come to terms with like one day i'm just gonna be like I'm, my brain isn't gonna work anymore like yeah. this body i'm in isn't gonna sustain the soul that's inside of it and i guess it kind of made me have more of a sense of urgency of like oh i need to like like if i'm wrong about my faith i need to learn you know, because lots of people like to criticize before they read into anything. Like they'll just read like the headline of something and like, oh, that's whatever. And so in my head, I was like, if this is what I really believe, I better figure out, like, is this what I really believe? Mm -hmm. And that's what made me so much more interested in actually reading the Bible, which I've never read it cover to cover. Um, I just finished the story of uh, the book of Genesis a couple nights ago. And I actually have some cool things I wanted to bring up to you about it. But... I had this like, just like real, I guess, epiphany almost like, yeah, like one day my parents are going to be like this. I'm going to be like this. My kids are going to be like this. Everyone I know and love is going to be like this. And I need to 
figure out what where like what my framework is for what this all means like really quickly because i don't know if you see my some of the stuff on youtube channel but i've had like a pretty near-death experience myself and you've been a lot yeah and you know i'm well aware that at any point in time like your life can be taken from you Mm -hmm. so i don't know pg school like helped me honestly like become more interested in it. and it's it's weird because they obviously don't talk about god at all they don't talk about jesus they don't teach you anything about it it's all cells and nerves and stuff and figuring out questions that humans have had for um centuries and stuff so i'm just curious what your thoughts are on that oh that's i mean it's pretty cool that you bring up the uh, you see old paintings of monks with skulls and that's exactly why they were looking at it because they were thinking the same thing you were. That's that's the amazing thing is that it wasn't meant to be any kind of like, you know, oh, the body is, is it's, we're just the body, nothing matters, we all die in the end. But it was, oh, wait a minute, we all die in the end. It's a different perspective. I think you got the, you got the kind of the, you hit it right on the head with like, it's like, well, how do I live my life? What do I believe in? Do I have my ducks in a row? And, you know, what am I living for? Because at the end, we do all die. You know, there's going to be a day for everyone when somebody's been holding, hopefully not your brain or mine, but <laughs> hopefully we're not cadavers. But I mean, <laughs> there, were, there was a person there uh, and you're holding their brain and, and, and to think of all those things that the brain saw and, and felt and heard and smelled and everything else and knew and all those memories that, were, that ran through the cells in that brain. It's amazing to think of. We only get one chance at life. We only get one shot. And of course, you know, we don't always make the best of choices, but knowing that we meet the same end someday, you know, the dust you return definitely changes the perspective on how we make choices now that you, we have a limited amount of time. You don't know when that's going to end. Yeah. I think it gives perspective to your life. It's not you know, anything could happen at any moment. Absolutely. It's not about like, oh no, I, God is going to judge me when I die. You know, I have to make right choices now, but really, what are you living for? You know, what's your goal in life? You get one shot. And that's it. And I think, I think it says a lot on how we act and interact. Absolutely. Do you, uh, do you talk about some of these insights with other students you're uh, in the program or? I'm trying to more. Like I mentioned earlier, um, like in high school and stuff, it was always something these are always things I believed in, but I never felt like I was educated enough or like, you know, like I said, I've never read the Bible cover to cover, like be, actually being in the word and stuff like, so I'm, I'm trying to a lot more, but mm-hmm. you know, we do talk like this is like, sometimes we'll be like doing the dissections and we'll just kind of stop for a second and be like, this is crazy that we're actually just doing this. And we're like, yeah, yeah it's pretty weird. And then we just keep going. It's, it's kind of one of those things. Yeah. 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 I wanted to, um, so I, I just mentioned, I've, I read through the book of Genesis and I just kind of wanted to go over some things that I thought were like super interesting. Um, and one of these ties in science. I don't know if I've read the entire thing of Genesis, but you know, we can take a shot. <laughs> no worries. So the Noah's Ark, the classic Noah's Ark story. Yeah. Um, I have a Bible right here, so I'm just going to read a part of it, but basically like I'm sure you're familiar with Noah's Ark story. Um, you know, God is analyzing his creation. He sees that they're mm-hmm. sinning like crazy. And mm-hmm. it says 
Um, and God, seeing that, that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that all the thought of their heart was bent upon evil at all times. Um, actually, I'm reading the wrong part. Here we go. Um, and God said, My spirit shall not remain in man forever because he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. So I don't know how you like read into that, but from like analyzations I've read, basically God is saying he's giving like mankind 120 years before mm -hmm. he sends the flood. Mm -hmm. And 120 years is how much time man has left, right? So I've taken some science courses. I know a few things about like lifespan and longevity. I've actually done a research paper on just like, you know, the humans that live the longest on earth. And only one human in history has ever lived over 120. And so what science has figured out is that no matter how good healthcare gets and like injury outcomes, um, diet, access to things, like us as humans, our mm -hmm. internal clock is 120 years. And there's no other human that's lived to 120. This one nope. person from France, I guess, got lucky, got an extra two years. But there's like five people who are 119. There's a current person who's 119 that's still alive. But humans don't live to 120. Yep. And I found that so interesting because I've always known that fact. And reading this book, it's like, you know, God saw the wickedness of man and he gave them 120 years before he would decide what, the, what the, he does with them. Does he destroy them or does he let them stay in the case of Noah? And I think mm -hmm. that speaks a lot to just the fact that you have at a maximum 120 years before, you know, yeah. judgment, essentially. Well, it's important to realize that that's a story. Um, it's just a story. Story. Most of Genesis is. Mm -hmm. We look at the Bible as if it's one book. It's not. It's, it's, it's a library. It's it's a it's a whole library with lots of different hands that wrote different parts of different books. So like the Adam and Eve story is a story. There was no person Adam. There was no person Eve. There was no man named Noah who lived in time who had a there was a flood. You know, I mean, I'm sure your English professor went through that you mentioned before. There are other ancient Near Eastern myths that have the same exact story you know, of the flood and, and the boat or, you know, a serpent in the garden. You know, they're, they're not meant to be a historical text, but it's an ancient people reflecting on how they viewed themselves and how they viewed their God. Um, so it's less so a, it's not a historical record, but it's meant to convey a message about who the people who wrote it believed God to be. And they believed that God gave them that they believed in a God who gave them a period of time to repent for what they had done wrong. Um, that God gives an opportunity to change your ways, that God doesn't strike you dead. Um, moral of, of that story. But there does come to a point where you do need to change or there are consequences. But same thing, especially reading Genesis, anything, you, you can't read them as this is exactly what's going to happen or this is exactly what happened. They convey a message about God. So, um, this is where Catholics and Protestants uh, differ, or a lot of fundamentalist Protestants differ, evangelical. Um, so we don't believe it's the literal word of God. So there are many hands who wrote the Bible, and there are 
we believe that the Holy Spirit, God guided the hearts and minds and hands of the people who wrote these stories, um, but they're not his words verbatim. Um, and no one sat there taking notes down as they were happening, certainly. Um, whereas a lot of fundamentalist uh, evangelicals will say that, no, it's the literal word of God. If God said it was seven days, it was seven days. If God said this, it was that. Um, kind of like how um, Muslims in the Quran, they believe it is the word of God verbatim. The mouth of God spoke these words. We as Catholics do not believe that, have never believed that before. Um, this is why we take a little bit more of an interpretive approach to um, the scriptures. Yeah, there's a cool little connection I wanted to make and kind of get your thoughts on, like, because I'm just yeah. always wondering, like, why would they, you know, why do they write what they write? Like, what is, because yeah. I view, like, everything written in there has a purpose, although, you know, it is interesting how certain aspects of like Genesis, like it's like just like pages of them just like listing off whose kids come from who. Oh, yeah. um, but I just thought that was so interesting. I read it because it was like, I don't know, it's like a, maybe it's a coincidence, but it's just something that I thought was really interesting. was like, you know, 120 years and that's as much time as you got max. So it's good. Yeah. If you're lucky. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, yeah. If, you're, if you have to be very lucky. To get up to that but um just more symbolism with christianity i want to talk up just real quick just about like jesus and the fact that he was a carpenter yeah and you know what do, what do carpenters do they they create mm -hmm. and also on top of that they kind of take you know they build the like the frame of a house the frame of something new like they build things to establish order um, amongst chaos, essentially. Yeah. And I just think it's, you know, like, of course, he's a carpenter. Um, it's just so interesting to me. So I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that. Like, if there's any significance to him being a carpenter. I haven't, like I said, I really haven't read through much of uh, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if they talk about that. But I thought that was, you know, just interesting. The fact that he's a carpenter. He's also God. God creates. Yeah, they don't they don't really talk about the the carpentry thing. It's more so because he's the son of Joseph the carpenter. They don't really talk about Jesus being the carpenter and just kind of assume that you know you take the trade of your father. Um, but the word actually is not even it's not specifically carpenter. Um, it's a Greek word called tekton, which could be a stone cutter, um, could be a day laborer. So Jesus, you know, and Joseph may not have you know I think it's like they're making tables and houses. They could have been, you know, the equivalent of, um, you know, like a, a migrant worker, a, a higher day laborer, um, which creates a whole different perspective. Somebody who really had to work day to day uh, and did not know where their next income might come from. Um, but it is pretty neat that you, you point out that he, he built things with his hands, whether it was cutting stones, whether it was making houses or frames or tables. It was kind of cool to think that, wow, Jesus probably built something that somebody used and might still be around somewhere. So that's kind of kind of neat to think of that if God creates, well, Jesus created things with his own hands too. I think it also adds to the fact um, that Jesus was a real human. Um, he had a job, you know, he, it, a lot of times it's so easy to look at like, you know, a crucifix or a stained glass window, or you see images of Jesus as if he's like, you know, a superhuman um, or as if he's, you know, like a, He's not one of us. And knowing that Jesus had a job that he clocked in, basically, or um, got paid to do something, 
adds to the image of Jesus as a real living, breathing human being who lived the same exact life we did and do. I think that that speaks a lot more than simply like, oh, he had a job. He went yeah. to sleep and he ate food. He got angry. He got tired. He, he cried when he got hurt. So, uh, you know, we forget that Jesus was a real human. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the most compelling aspect of Christianity is just you have God stepping into man's flesh and there's like now a relationship between you know it's just, there's God the divine there's the divine with man and then there's man with man it's like now you just kind of have like that intersection of the two um, yeah and you know every time I think about it honestly like almost gets me emotional like just thinking about the whole sacrifice like the whole story of just Jesus it's like it's I think it's the most powerful story and you know you could say it's just because I, I've been raised in a household that believes in all these things and whatnot but it, it's such a a powerful story because you have that intersection I feel like it's not you know you can read a mythological story and like there's these all-powerful gods that just do whatever um yeah. it's like just the intersection it has that human touch to it yeah and I think what makes it really more powerful is that it's not just God becoming man. It's God becoming man. Well, St. Athanasius has the famous phrase, God became man so that a man become, could become God. That's centuries old. But he became man to offer us forgiveness and mercy. And that even though we were in the worst state you know, possible, even though we don't deserve necessarily anything, even though you know, we make awful mistakes, our God loved us enough to become one of us and to live those mistakes with us. I think that that speaks a lot, you know, that we're not too far gone. He loves us so much. He would become, he would deal with human life to save all of us. I think that's what makes it even more so. Um, forgiveness is always offered. Mercy is always offered. God's love is greater than any mistake we could ever make. Absolutely. It's not about us being perfect and earning our way into heaven or salvation or anything like that. No, we screwed up. We continue to. And yet God loves us so much that he became one of us, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of our sinfulness and mistakes. Yes. Yeah. You don't find that in another, you know, mythological story in ancient Greece or Rome or any of the other, even religions. You don't hear that. Christianity right. is the only religion that has that theme. That no matter how many times we mess up, God's forgiveness and love is greater than anything we do wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And then going off of that, so I know another difference with uh, Protestantism and Catholicism is kind of, not the afterlife itself, but I guess I know like there's purgatory, no purgatory. What do you know about purgatory? Like I'm, I'm just like, I'm kind of confused on the whole thing. Like what is... What are these like realms that you can go to in the afterlife? Well, the, the first thing is, is to understand that they're not physical places. They're not, you know, you know, it's not like, you know, right now we're in New York, then there's Chicago, there's LA, and then there's Miami. No, they're not physical places. They're not places you can go to um, because, and they exist outside of time. Um, so heaven is not a, God is timeless. God has no time. We live in a finite world. So when we try to discuss these concepts of, say, heaven, hell, purgatory, or anything like that, we can't help but think of them in a physical sense, like a location, or in a, a timely sense in time, 
because that's all we know. It's hard for us to conceive of a place outside of physical, outside of the physical world and outside of time. Um, and so the Catholic Church at least believes that these are states of being. And, and, and the definition of heaven could simply be eternal closeness to God. And then hell would be eternal distance from God forever. Just one is totally with God, one is totally without God. Um, so they're not physical places in time. Um, and then purgatory kind of is an interesting thing because we don't believe, the Catholic Church does not believe in purgatory as a physical place or as a place of time. We do believe in a, an experience of purgation for our sins. That's a different experience, that's a different thing. So in popular you know, thought, it's like purgatory is like heaven's waiting room where you serve out a little bit of a sentence and then eventually get released and go to heaven. That's not what we believe. Um, we believe that our when we make mistakes, when we commit sins, even though we are forgiven, they build up some kind of punishment that needs to be worked off. Now, that can be worked off in a moment's notice. Again, these things are outside of time. So we believe that after death, you see the face of God and who looking on the face of God wouldn't say they're sorry for what they did wrong, right? You would think. Uh, well, that's an experience of purgation, purging of our sins. Purgatory is a place of purging of sins, a pur purging of the punishment. So in a, purgatory can be understood more so as a, a purgation of our sins rather than a place to work off time um, or work off like a prison sentence. And so that's something where it's more so semantics rather than an actual like conflict of belief that separates Christian. Um, Catholics from Protestants. A lot, of, a lot of the issues that began the Protestant Reformation have been worked out over the, over the centuries. A lot of it were simply misunderstandings rather than actual conceptual differences, depending. Gotcha. But yeah, there's no, there's no place, place to go to purgatory. But an experience of you know, God purging you of your mistakes and everything you've done wrong, that we believe in. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. All right. I'll ask uh, one more question, and then I think we can wrap things up. Is that okay with you? Well, whatever, you know, whatever you need. Awesome. I appreciate it. Um, I have uh, some notes on my phone here that uh, I wrote down some stuff. Yeah, sure. Actually, I do just have a question. I, so I know you studied like ethics and morals and stuff like that. So would it be safe to say, I'm just assuming just because of the religious background, like you believe that like, what are your thoughts on the statement or just like the debate between morality? Is it objective versus subjective? Well, I think, uh, I think there are certain moral absolutes, like certain norms, but very few do not kill unjustly would be something that I'm pretty sure everybody could get behind. And that seems to be an objective kind of moral norm that nearly every culture and place has ever, um, you know, kind of gotten behind. Do not kill unjustly. Um, what, they, what they consider just or unjust would be something different. Um, but there are, you know, certain moral norms that must be upheld, few, but they're universal and for and for everyone. Do not kill unjustly, you know, um, 
John bear false witness. I'm not saying it's the commandments, but I mean, there are certain things there that objectively, yeah, for, for all pla people in all places. Are they objective because it's just like what most people believe, or would you say they're objective because of the Bible? Well, I wouldn't say they're objective because of the Bible. I, I would think that I would say that they're objective because of God's law, and that goes beyond the Bible. I mean, we are human beings, um, and whether you're Catholic or not, whether you're a Christian or not, Catholics at least believe that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore have innate human dignity. It's natural, and nothing could ever take that away. And anything that destroys or works against the image and likeness of God that is in all people would be considered uh, for that reason would be considered objective moral evil um at least that's from a christian perspective you know, speaking from other backgrounds that obviously it's outside my area and I'm difficult to even understand but yeah anything that really goes against human dignity would be considered you know an objective moral evil for that reason human dignity and that's something that goes beyond religion every human person even even the the worst criminal in the world still has human dignity and still you know you'd still need to treat them in a moral way you know that's why questions of like well the death penalty have come up uh, who are you to judge that somebody can be condemned to death or cruel and unusual punishment you know for other people could be the worst person in the world could have been you know stalin you know or hitler or any of them you know Dignity does not get erased. You could be an evil person. And so there are certain, that would be the objective moral norm, would be preserving that person's human dignity, even if they're an awful person, even if they're not a Catholic or a Christian. Right. Yeah. I, I see a lot with my my generation just because these are who I'm interacting with as a college student. Yeah. Um, like there's kind of like this, the way people cope a lot of times with their their issues is like nothing matters. I hear that a lot. Like, oh, like, oh, it's already, everything's predetermined and none of it actually matters. So I'm not going to let it bother me and whatnot. And then a, co a common like thing I hear from people who identify as atheist or agnostic is just, you know, like, I don't think God is all good because bad things happen, which at first glance, it's like, yeah, it's, that's, Fair enough, but I mean, I personally would disagree. But um, I don't know. It's a common theme I see, and that's something I I've tried to discuss on my social media pages a little bit. Is like I'm very anti nihilism, and like this is meaningless because, and I try to argue it from like a science standpoint, even not religious yeah. in nature. Like just the fact that you know if if this all is meaningless. You know, why do you get hungry? Why do you feel pain? Why are these things just innately given to us? And you'll say, oh, it's just, you know, survival mechanisms. And it just randomly came about. And it's like, it's okay, okay so why, why do you play by the rules then? You know what I mean? Like, why do you get out of bed? Why do you decide to go to school? Why do you decide, like, to do these things? And that's, I think, been my... I know we talked earlier about, like, not trying to be, like, argumentative and stuff, but... Um, I don't know. It's something I've just noticed. Like, there's so many people around me that are pretty deeply nihilistic and stuff. Not that I like and like best friends with them or anything, but it's just a common theme I see. And 
I don't know how you would go about kind of addressing it. That's what I try to do is I try to say like, you know, my, my whole opinion is as someone who's been through some suffering is just like, that's what fuels progression and achievement is things are bad. Like, you know, a complaint I've had of humanity is that humanity is very reactive, not very proactive. Like bad things usually need to happen for people to then become proactive about mm -hmm. the bad thing. Mm -hmm. And so usually like evil or bad things are like a, a predecessor for good. And yeah. they usually fuel, you know, innovation and stuff like that. So I try to word things like that. Like bad things have to be present in order for good. It's like, you know, one can't exist without the other. Yeah. And we, at least as Catholics, always believe that, you know, we don't understand why bad things happen to good people. We don't understand why there's evil in the world. And anybody who thinks they have an answer to that, you know, is just wrong. Uh, nobody can know those things. Uh, not even Jesus tried to give an explanation of those things. Um, we don't know why, but we do believe that God can bring good out of it. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus worked, at least in the Bible, you, you know, people asked him like, oh, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? You know, people work with the concept of if I do bad things, bad things will happen to me. If I do good things, good things will happen to me. But as anybody who lives in life knows, it doesn't work out that way. Um, and religion doesn't have an answer to that. No one has an answer to that. Um, but it's what you do in response to that is what's important. Um, because we don't believe in a God who snaps his fingers and make things, makes things great. Uh, we don't believe in God as some kind of magic genie who could fix anything. We don't. At least as Catholics, we don't. Um, and we can't expect anyone else you know, to fix those things for us either. And we live in a world, people have free choice. Sometimes you know, your free choice affects me in a negative way. But how do we respond to that? That's the different story. You know, do you fight fire with fire? You know, do you work towards overcoming injustices in the world? That's a different story. You know, because there are things, yeah, there's suffering in the world, but there doesn't have to be. Like you're saying, like, okay, this bad thing happened. Well, how can I fix what happened with that? You know, how can we build a better world? You know, we're all works in progress. Absolutely. No, one, no one has it figured out. And certainly the, the, the church doesn't either. It doesn't claim to. Right. I like how you mentioned um, free will kind of there and how yeah. we have free will and stuff. And, you know, that's another common answer I try to give is like humans mess up. You know, we we aren't perfect beings and yeah. we never will be. And, you know, that's another thing is people, there's a lot of people who like, you'll hear this all, you, I'm sure you've heard it, but like, I just want to be happy. This thing, like, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. I hear so many people say that. And I feel bad because it's not possible to just be happy forever oh. um, on not on earth at least and no. it's you know it's the free will thing it's the free will thing like no matter what happens like life is gonna throw some suffering your way and or some pain and yeah. like we talked about one day you're not gonna be here and that's gonna affect people and yeah. so there's no way to just just be happy and like eternally no on earth and Nowhere. So, yeah, I think that's just been a problem with my generation is like identifying, coming to terms with the fact that like time is finite here. And, you know, I think it's a little overwhelming for people and they just, you know, want to be happy and 
I don't know. I feel like people just need to think more about what they mean when they say that. Because I think what they mean is they want, like, honestly, they want an escape from the bad things. They yeah. want an escape from suffering. Like, I just want, like, you know, financial stability. I want, like, a loving family, relationships and stuff. And everything to just be a-okay. Mm -hmm. Pretty much what, they, what they're saying. So, what are your thoughts on that? But that's not going to happen. Uh, right. it, it's sad. I mean, and I think part of it is, and that this sounds maybe awful, but it's, you know, when you're fed from a very young age, everybody gets a trophy. You do you. You're wonderful the way you are. You know, things like that. When you're fed messages like that constantly, constantly, when you realize, well, wait a minute, in life, I'm not getting a trophy for this. I messed up. Or, hey, I'm not perfect. I need to work on that. Or oh, me being me just got me fired from my job. <laughs> or when you're fed that message, I mean, same thing, you know, I think, you know, I grew up at least the same kind of mentality. Everybody, at least probably past 40 years have. Um, you're fed that as a kid and then you get, you, you meet life and you realize, well, life is not great sometimes. It's not always a walk in the park. And then what happens? You crash, it come crashing down because you're set, you're kind of set up for failure. Um, and then, and then you're like, oh no, what do I do now? You know, you, you're not, you're not able to respond to that well. And I do think it's very unfortunate that we continue to like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or I don't want to think about that. We want to, I, you know, it's sad. We're setting, I think we're setting more and more, especially young kids up for, up for failure by kind of reinforcing that. Like, oh, if you don't want to talk about that, then we won't talk about it. Or if you don't want to face that challenge, you don't have to face it. We're always going to face challenges. Uh, you can't avoid that. Everyone throughout all time have. And it's kind of, I do think it's unfortunate because then, then things come crashing down. And then when things come crashing down, who do we blame? Usually God. Right. It's rather than saying like, oh, wait a minute, I wasn't realistically thinking about that. I'm like, oh no, obviously my life is awful and, and God did this to me. Or how could there be God when this is, no, you know? Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's something that I think our society needs to work on uh, a lot more, being more realistic with life in general. 100% agree. 100% yeah. agree. And yeah. the, the last thing I want to say, um, sure. just going off of that is, and as you touched on it, like instead of, I think people will blame God or it'll fuel their, um, their not believing in God, but I think we would agree that God is actually the answer or these bad things are happening to even maybe test your faith or to, you know, I've always been very like hard on myself and I've always been very like, I need to do more. I need to do more. I can do better. I can do better. And people picked up on that super easily. Um, professors have people I've worked with, you know, like, why can't you just be like, you're doing a great job. Like it's, you can relax and like, it, like it's, you know, you're doing good. Like I constantly need like affirmation that I'm doing all right. And that I'm like maintaining like the standard, which I place upon myself, which is high. And that's another thing I've, I've gotten a lot better with is just kind of like, accepting that I'm flawed and that I'm not going to always be perfect, yeah. but it actually through my belief in God, it actually has made me more productive and it's made me solve some of the issues in my life because by not blaming God, instead of, you know, I can't, I can't handle this on my own. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Like there was all these things I was placing upon myself that I couldn't handle. And 
some people would say, oh, well, I'm going to blame God or this is like, obviously he doesn't exist if this is the way I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of personally have t- turned that around and I can't handle this on my own. Like I, I'm putting myself at too high of a standard and because of that, it's, it's caused me to kind of branch out more and seek God essentially, which I think is people kind of have it backwards. They need to, I, I, I don't know if the word is surrender, but just like, let go. Like it's okay to like, I, that's, and I guess I think that's what I think they mean. Like it's okay to be imperfect. Like, yes, but that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. And exactly. it's not fuel to, you know, go against God essentially. Yeah. And, and, and it shouldn't be an excuse to like, you know, say, oh, woe is me or, oh, I'm not going to try. Oh, it should give you, you know, like, like it did with you, Michael, it like gives you a chance like, oh no, here's what I can change. Here's how I can do better. Here's, you know, you obviously took it in a very positive way. I think a lot of people struggle to do that. And, and cause I think we're kind of built up against that mentality. We're built up with the, everything is always going to be great for you. If you, if you, if you work hard, sometimes it's not, sometimes the nice guy finishes last. Um, but then what do you do when you do finish last? You know, do you shut down? Do you say, you know, I'm just not going to care anymore? Or do you pick yourself up and, and get back out there? And I think that's something we need to, you know, man up. Not man up, but, you know, like uh, step up to the plate when it comes to certain things. Because I don't think, you know, we could easily use God as an excuse to do things or not to do things. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you have any questions for me, Father Nick? Uh Nothing I can think of. No, it's it's been a pleasure. It really has. You know, I mean, it's it's wonderful to see that you know you're you've really integrated you know your your faith and your experiences and, and and especially your studies. I think that's that's you know an awesome thing. Yeah, can't yeah. wait to see what comes next for you. Thank you very much. I'm always trying to. I'm a big believer that I don't think science cancels out religion or vice versa. I think yeah, you can just grow in the two of them and. That's something I've I've been telling some friends actually who have been asking me, is, you know, you know, like you you can be religious and also study like science stuff and like, oh yeah, at the same time. Yeah, um, they don't. So, yeah. Well, thank you so so much, Father Nick. I really appreciate oh, you taking time to yeah. this. Um, I'd be happy to talk again some point in the future. Yeah, you know, sure. I'm sure, yeah. as I continue to read more into the Bible and you know, explore my faith. I'm going to have a lot more questions and whatnot, but you know, I do really appreciate this and you taking the time to talk with me. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you for asking me. You know, it's a, it's a pleasure and honor and uh, yeah, I look forward to more questions and stuff. I might not have answers, but still that's part of the fun of it. It's like, you know, you learn the answers as you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope the, the viewers and those listening got some perspective or, you know, some insight out of this. I hope so too. I hope so too. All right. Awesome. Thanks for watching, guys, and hopefully I'll keep doing these and you'll hear more from me soon. See ya.